Before we start today's episode, we wanted to thank our newest Patreon supporters, Amy Craig, Kathy Clearly, Sarah Johnson, and Neha. Thank you all so much for your continued support. It means everything to us. I'm Double Jackson III. Welcome to another episode of Dive In Justice, the podcast that explores building ideal communities with our less than ideal selves. I'm not doing this with you. I'm not. No, you're going to start from the top and you're going to do this right, or you don't get to introduce the episode anymore. <laughs> I can't even introduce the episode now. I'm ready. Welcome to another episode of Dive In Justice, the podcast that explores building ideal communities with our less than ideal selves. I'm Shandine Garcia. And I'm Delma Jackson. Uh, today, we are excited to be joined by Ms. Leah Penniman of the Soul Fire Farm Institute, who will be with us to talk about uh, her work, what it means to do her work, where she does her work, who she does it for, and how we might all be able to mimic and contribute to the better world that she's trying to create. However, before we get into that, uh, as always, we wanted to start the show with our highs and lows. So, Shandine, uh, tell me how you're doing, how you been, where you're fucking up, etc. <laughs> I'm actually having, <laughs> I'm having a good week, complete with a bunch of fuck-ups, I'm sure. Well, um that my yeah. my high is it's it's college announcement week time. So we're waiting to find out where Isaiah has gotten into college. And for me, it's less about where he's gotten in and more about watching him navigate what his next steps are going to be. He's trying to decide if he's going to take a gap year or as my friend calls it, a nap year or actually go to school. And so far, he's gotten into two of his top choices. Mm. And for me watching his anxiety mm -hmm. just drop, even yeah. though I'm annoyed that it has to be framed in, you know, like whiteness and culture going college, all that stuff. Like he's still, his heart is settling and he's spending the day longboarding with friends because it's spring break and he works really hard. He's in a lot of tough classes and it's just beautiful to watch him uh, relax. And so that's my high. Mm -hmm. My low is really fully acknowledging that, um, the journey to of self-care and healing and all of that <laughs> it's really fucking hard and it's just hard there's no shortcut there's no um set of steps that you do and then you're suddenly healed so what? it is what it is i know it's bullshit right i hope you didn't go into it with that expectation well <laughs> i knew it wasn't gonna be overnight but I didn't know it'd be this fucking hard. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely not the self-care narrative of just get a massage and, you know, and, and take a nice walk and read a book. Cause that is, that is a lie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What, what about you? What you got going on? Um, yeah, I think I'll start with my lows just cause I always like to end on a high note whenever possible. So, um, this week, I had to have a real heart-to-heart -heart, um, <clears throat> with um, my sister, my mom. I'm thinking about how much longer I want to be living here 
in Flint. Um, thinking about my long-term career options, the educational opportunities for my children. And so I'm considering, um, at least in the short term, staying in Michigan, but getting out of Flint, maybe heading down to the Detroit area. And there are some health things. Um, you know, my mom is aging. Well, we're all aging, right? My mom's aging, my sister's aging. And um, I just want to feel like if I do take off, that things are going to be in order, if you will. And so there were some conversations that I needed to have with um, my mom, my sister, my children, my ex-wife, you know, just all the moving pieces of family to try to figure this thing out. And it does not feel easy. Um, And I don't know that I'm any closer to where I want to be. Right. Um, But a lot of anxiety around it. Some of the conversations I needed to have. And um, although I feel decent about having them, I do think that um, there will be more conversations to come. And I don't feel brave. I feel very cowardly (laughs) right now. Um, Like I'm trying to avoid them or, you know, just keep thinking like there has to be an easier way to get what I want without having to talk about it with everybody, you know, like that bullshit. And so that's what it's like. Where's the shortcut? Yeah, Where's the shortcut? Exactly. I'm looking for the, for the shortcut, the self-care shortcut that you were just talking about. And I was clowning you for so full circle, (laughs) right? Um, Two peas in a goddamn pod here, but I, oh, you see what I did there? Two peas in a pod. Huh? You like that? that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's what's up. Um, In terms of highs for the week, um, I did have some of the conversations I needed to have. So check that one off the box. I got first vaccination shot and that feels good. Um, and so I am, uh, just been handling business this week, feeling good about what I've been able to accomplish this week. Um, did a little bit of meditating and got some clarity around some career stuff. Um, so yeah, it's been a, it's been a good week overall. Well, I'm glad you're getting a shot. I won't tell you, I'll tell you now, but I've been having anxiety thinking about you and your girl, like on the plane back and forth, visiting each other and not having the shot. So right. like, now that I know you're getting it, I'm going to start to let that shit go. Cause I just keep thinking, ah, yeah, yeah, we've been living dangerously. She's getting her second shot the same weekend that I'm actually going to see her. Um, and we lined it up that way on purpose so that if there's some self-care, I mean, some some caring for her needs that I can be there totally, to do that. Totally. Um, and hopefully she'll be able to do the same for me. Cause like most men, when I get sick, the world ends, I whine, I cry, I complain, and I am shameless about it. I ain't trying to be strong and pretend like everything's okay. Fuck that. Where's my little bell so I can ring it and have somebody come tend to my needs. Why are you shaking your head? I'm just feeling deep empathy for your girl. That's all I'm saying. Whatever. All I'm saying. I do too, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> because you are that shit. I am. Yeah. And, and she's never been really around me when I've been sick. So she's about to learn what that means. And I do feel bad for her. But I get to say. Well, I'm happy. I'm happy you're both getting the shot because that's one less thing I can I have to worry about. Fair enough. Fair enough. So as we've already been hyping up since we started, 
the show, we wanted to go ahead and introduce our guest, Miss Leah Penniman. Leah Penniman is a Black Creole farmer, author, mother, and food justice activist who has been tending the soil and organizing for an anti-racist food system for over 20 years. She currently serves as a founding co-executive director of Soul Fire Farm in Grafton, New York, a black and brown land project that works toward food and land justice. Her book is Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farm's Practical Guide to Liberation and the Land. Find out more about Leah's work at soulfirefarm.org and follow her at Soul Fire Farm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leah, thank you for taking the time to join us today and welcome to Dive in Justice. Of course, it's an honor to be here with both of you. Even Shandine, huh? All right, that's what's up. That's what's up. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I uh, have had the opportunity to observe your work from a distance for a while now through uh, friends of mine, colleagues of mine, and um, just always been in awe of what you've been able to pull off. But for the sake of this interview, I think where I want to start where I start with so many of our guests. How how do you perceive that that became your particular expression, that became your particular calling? Oh my goodness. I mean, the work of Soul Fire Farm and more broadly, the work of liberation of food and lands, uh, you know, it's an ancestor's errand. It's a mm. earth instruction, really. I mean, so, so I'll briefly summarize three beginnings or three inspirations. One, you know, my sister and I, five, six years old, sick of being teased in school for being the only brown kids. We make deep, fast friends with the forest. Uh, we apprentice ourselves to Grandmother Pine. We invent a religion, so we think, called Mother Nature, right? And, mm. and, and make offerings and create songs of praise and, and start a whole uh, initiative in defense of the forest, right? So that, that's a, an, a beginning, is that, that intimate relationship. Of course, I found out in my young adulthood, we were remembering our ancestral religion, not so much inventing, right? So second mm. beginning, I'm a teen, it's time to get a job. Because if I want a bicycle, I need to pay for it. If I want to go to college, I need to pay for it. So I get hired at the food project in Boston and learn how to grow food and learn uh, what capital G good really means in terms of that elegant simplicity of seed to harvest and that undeniable, essential nature of, of the work of growing and distributing food. And so I decide farming is my thing. I go and work, you know, at a bunch of different farms. And then the third beginning, of course, is, is Soul Fire. And that particularly came out of the, the pain of being unable to feed our young children, Nashima and Emmett, uh, ancestral, whole, natural foods because of the neighborhood we lived in, in the south end of Albany, which is under food apartheid. And there wasn't a farmer's market, supermarket, uh, no available community garden plot. So when our neighbors found out that we knew how to farm, they started you know, chiding us to start a farm for the people. And that became the inspiration for Soul Fire. You know, we found the land, the land found us outside of Albany. We started after some some labor, of course, to get, get things off the ground, you know, start being able to provide that food. So so those are the, the origins, but fundamentally, mm -hmm. to answer mm -hmm. your question of, of the deeper why, it does feel like a destiny path and, and a non-negotiable, so to speak, to be doing mm -hmm. this work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. 
curious if um, your destiny path, when you when you open with the with your beginnings, you say remembering, not inventing. Curious if you feel that destiny path was actually started um, previous to um, that actual forced friend time, and where maybe on the journey you are in your trajectory and where you think it's heading. Oh, Ashe. Yeah, I think as young people, when we, we become conscious to our story is not the beginning of our story. So I appreciate that. And actually in African traditional religion, of which I'm a practitioner of Yoruba and Vildun, you know, your destiny is actually formed, you know, before you're born. And, and there's a mm-hmm. whole lot of forces that collaborate to determine your destiny, including the Orisha, the forces of nature, you know, your ancestors, your own mm-hmm. Ori. Uh, so that, that happens for all of us is my belief. Uh, but lineage wise, you know, I, I come from uh, Haitian ancestry, Dahomey, Taino, Seminole, mm-hmm. uh, and European, uh, both French and British. And uh, there's a lot, a lot, a lot to unpack there. But uh, my people, like so many peoples are agrarian, uh, like so many peoples were dispossessed of their land through uh, enslavement, through racial terror, uh, through the great migration. And I do think that even as it was a, a very appropriate and understandable survival strategy for my grandparents, my great-grandparents to decide to leave behind a rural farming life and all of the pain that had become synonymous with that life. We also now realize that a very significant part of our culture uh, and our dignity is also left behind in those soils. And so I, I see myself as part of a re- returning generation of black farmers who are reclaiming the right to dignity and belonging on the lands, who are reclaiming the right to sovereignty on the land um, and doing our best Sankofa-wise, right, to go back and pick up uh, what was left behind and build upon it. So the Mm -hmm. future, you know, the future is black and brown folks having uh, secure permanent land tenure, having sovereignty, being able to feed our communities, being able to uh, take care of and revive native ecosystems to be able to dismantle white supremacist conceptions of private property like that. That's our future. And and mm-hmm. I know that, you know, we might get to the mountaintop, but not not the promised land. Like, I understand that. But um, but I think we're doing our, our steps along the way towards that future. Thank you for giving Diving Justice a listen. We recognize that your time is the most valuable currency you have. If you're digging the pod, there are a couple of things you can do to show your support. First, head over to your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds of your time. And every review helps us grow our listenership and broadens the conversations we can have together. The second thing you can do and should do is consider supporting the podcast by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dive underscore in underscore justice. I'm wondering if you could help our listeners um, think or um, unpack a little bit the, I think, both generative tension and sometimes painful tension in Black Indigenous solidarity in the context of land. How do you help folks engage and understand the generative and um, what it, what can be generative tension and conflict in what that solidarity can truly look like as opposed to an oppression Olympics, you're okay. on my land, this is my land. And so now you get to have this land just because you were brought here. You know, the whole thing that unfolds and doesn't allow people to actually get in, talk and be real and instead just fight with one another. 
Oh, there is so much in there um, and so much healing that's needed. And I, I will say that I was super naive and probably continue to be because we all have our own areas of ignorance. We can't see. Someone has to point them out for us usually. But, you know, several years back when I was just getting deeper into the regional organizing work, I had this assumption that as black and indigenous people, and those are not mutually exclusive terms, uh, mm -hmm. that we were natural allies to each other, that it would make mm -hmm. sense to be in solidarity, to uh, fight against white supremacy, to fight for access to land for all of us. And I did not understand, fully understand how powerful the project of settler colonialism and racial capitalism had been with their divide conquer and distract tac tactics, you know, and that's mm -hmm. old. That mm -hmm. goes back to the way the, you know, Buffalo soldiers were guaranteed mm -hmm. freedom in order to and, and go annihilate, you know, native people. It goes to, you know, Cherokee and other nations dispossessing people, including my ancestors of their citizenship uh, for being mm -hmm. black very recently. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it has to do with slaveholding that's happened. It has to do with, you know, the annihilation of, of, um, indigenous men in the Northeast and then um, Native folks, women being threatened that if they get together with Black men that they lose their citizenship and right to land. And, and so mm -hmm. it is deep and, and many more examples. And I did not understand how much those wounds we were still carrying forward and does result in those patterns. You talk about the oppression Olympics and, you know, we can't stand for each other. It's sort of, you know, and, and even though the math <laughs> The math is that, you know, 98% of the rural land in this country uh, that's arable is white owned, you know, and so here we are mm -hmm. fighting over the 2% when we really should be calling to account the white folks for the 98. Like, even though that logic is there, I think it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't um, overtake the need for that deep healing. And it's going to be generations of dialogue that, that happen in order for that uh, healing to happen. All that to say, you know, we as an organization, we are black and brown led, including indigenous people here. But we're in Mohican territory and none of us are the original peoples of this land. And so we are not mm -hmm. absolved of the need to to be in solidarity and to and in, in tangible ways. And but I would say the most beautiful uh, sort of culmination of this is, is last year we finally were able to create a legally binding agreement that calls a cultural respect easement where uh, citizens of the nation can use this land forever uh, for ceremony, you know, hunting their annual campouts, the things, things they want to do. And that will, that will be in perpetuity beyond our particular tenure on the land. And so that's both a symbolic victory and also a tangible victory for, you know, people to have this land back in a shared way. Uh, so, so that's really exciting and, and we'll see what's next. It's really going to be on their terms. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I think there are 17,000 topics in that, that um, <laughs> when Delma mentioned on the, on the top of the show that we're hoping that we can have you come back. There are a few in there that I just think a deep dive would be incredible. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thank you for the work um, that you've been doing on this time in community. Um, and with that said, I'm curious to know what are some of the tools, practices that you have found useful in terms of bolstering your own spine, so to speak, and allowing you to stay in place when others might have uh, run off? Mm. 
Well, I'm not sure I have more courage or skills than anyone else. I have my own run, run and hide, or maybe I'm more freeze, right? We're all like fight, flight, or freeze. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but I will mm-hmm. say that uh, practices that give fortitude. Uh, so I'll say the spiritual stuff that I feel like you're expecting, but I will also say that even more helpful for me recently <laughs> has been to to get incredibly advanced in my um, calendaring and boundary setting because the thing mm-hmm. that runs me down is that. I want to be, and we want to be endlessly responsive to community need. And that community need is endless. So mm-hmm. like 24 seven would not be enough to meet the need. And people get mad belligerent when you say no too. So, mm-hmm. so it's not even, mm-hmm. it's not even that you set a healthy boundary and the community celebrates you. They're like, well, what about me though? So, so I think that, you know, some more advanced techniques around, around calendaring and getting some mentorship from people who who understand not just regular busy, but like busy, busy, busy. Um, that's mm-hmm. been, that's been very helpful. Uh, as far as the, the spiritual fortitude piece. Oh, you know, it's a daily thing. I mean, we make, you know, we make offerings to the ground. We, we pray for the Ajoguns to be removed. The Ajoguns are those forces of negativity, like illness and overwhelm and stress and contention. You know, we pray every day for them to be removed and we pray every day for all of the ire, the forces of blessing to come to us, long life, um, healthy children, stable home, uh, peaceful community, abundance every day. And, and we'll make our offerings and call for that. And uh, it sounds simple, but I think when I forget and I go many days without remembering to ask the forces of the universe for what we actually need, um, I can get those can get obscured. It can be a uh, purpose can can be obscured and life can be confusing and devoid of meaning. So, you know, we, there's more festivals and things and all that that we do. But I would say just the daily practice of. Thank you. You know, thank you for all these things. Please remove these things. Please bring in these blessings. Please forgive me. Ashe um, is the root of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank if you. I could. If I could ask you to actually go deeper into the, like, I, I think, I think it's beautiful to and important to think. And I'm a huge prayer. I try to pray, you know, honestly, two, sometimes three, four, five times a day. And, you know, Delma and I talk all the time about where executive functioning <laughs> just kicks <laughs> us in the ass, right? Like, no amount of like mm-hmm. me offering cornmeal and say, like, help me, creator, today is going to get my shit together some days. And the, the, like, the competing, um, produce, produce, produce. People are hurting. People need more. Work harder. Work faster. Work. I had uh, a somatic healer tell me, Shandine, would you yell? at a, you know, flower growing, grow faster, grow stronger, grow like, like connect <laughs> quicker. Would you, she's like, cause that's what you're doing to yourself. That's what, like, that's what this looks like. You're like, mm-hmm. we are nature. And, and, and so how do you like, how do you deal with that? And then, and then a tougher question is like, when I get petty, <laughs> what that looks like isn't, um, isn't always pretty. And so when you're in the thick of it and trying to balance the actually asking and offering thanks while also dealing with the extreme need, while also about ready to toss your computer out the door because it's glitching around calendaring, how does that show up for you? And and how would you, how do you navigate it? How do you wish you would navigate it? Mm -hmm. Like how does petty show up? So 
I mean, I don't know if I, this is a source of pride or shame or not even that framework, but I don't do a lot of externalizing my petty or my overwhelm. I tend to turn it on myself. Uh, so it, it manifests as sickness. It manifests as anxiety, as sleeplessness, as mm-hmm. self-doubt. Um, and I'm, I'm really, really good at over-functioning and continuing with a smile and projecting, I got you. Uh, it has to get pretty severe. And, and then I'll, I'll just tend to retreat into the caves, the metaphorical caves, so to speak, until I can continue to smile and care for. Uh, so, that, you know, that's my, pers- that's my personal work. I would say, you know, I have some pet peeves, but again, I don't, you know, I try not to get at people. I get, I get real peeves about uh, entitlement. I get, yeah, real peeves around um, whining, which I guess is a form of manifestation of entitlement. So anything around that. <laughs> I'm just like, I ain't got no time for that. Nobody owe you nothing. You know, <laughs> I, I have a, actually a follow up with that. Um, I think one of the things, because I oftentimes find myself working with young folks, um, like high school, undergrad sometimes grad school age, um, the stereotypical age we think of, late teens, early 20s. And as they are coming often into their own political awareness, conscious building, um, their process tends to follow a pattern that is similar to my own, where eventually anger comes into play and a sense of zeal and some self-righteousness to boot and all of these factors come into nah, play. Nah, what you talking about? That never happens. That's <laughs> what? Um, and so what I often find is that my younger me would be so impatient with the current me. Mm-hmm. Talk about it. Right. And so sometimes when we get into spaces where we're all together, I see that that divide between the folks that are ready to move yesterday, but don't necessarily have a lot of experience navigating systems of power. Mm-hmm. And then the elders who are like, slow down. I got it all figured out. And I am. I could be dismissive of what some of these young folks have to offer. Right? You're dismissive of the young folks, you say. Yeah, it can it can yeah. cut both ways. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you talked about the entitlement piece, that's what brought, that's what came up for me <laughs> because my young people, I love them. And I used to be this, but sometimes I could see this thing where it's like, hey, old man, if you're not approaching this the way I am, mm-hmm. then you're not about this life. You ain't about this work. Right, right. I mean, there's so much in there. So yes, what you're saying. So I'll tell you a really quick story. When I was in college, it was 9-11, right? The, the attacks and the war and all that. And I remember the response to it, the, the youngsters, and I was one of them, we started something called the Worcester Global Action Network, which was this anti-imperialist radical organization. At the same time, the people who lived in the city, longtime activists, started something called Worcester Peaceworks. And, uh, you know, it was mostly old folks and we would try to collaborate. And I remember their initial meetings, they were talking about establishing governance and strategy. 
And I was so confused mm. because we had already planned a rally. We had already planned to chain ourselves to some things. And they're talking about this, like, who's, how are we making decisions? And <laughs> who's going to be the email listener? Who's going to monitor this and that other thing? And so I was there, man. I thought these old people had no idea. Well, you know which organization still exists. Mm. I'll give you mm. one guess, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's still organized. And it's not to say the young folks are right or the old folks are right, you know, but, but I do think um, something that really helps me very much is this, this image of the wing, the four wings of a butterfly of transformative social justice, right? Mm. So the four wings include, number one, resist. That's the blockades, the marches, the strikes, the uh, sit-ins, right? That's one wing. Another wing is the reform wing. This is how we infiltrate the system. We have some school teachers in there teaching the youngsters. We got some people in office, you know, a couple people, prosecutors in the DA who are going to go for lighter sentences or alternative sentencing. That's the reform. Uh, another wing is the build, the alternative institutions, the people who are starting the freedom schools, the farms, the co-ops, the food hubs, the credit unions, kind of the world we want to see. And then the fourth is heal. That's the ritual, the ceremony, the therapy, the somatics. And we spend a lot of time, we are one butterfly, but we spend a lot of time fighting around which wing is more important when in fact the butterfly cannot fly without all of those wings. So it's, I really think it's a yes and, and it's really about appreciating that we do need, you know, we need those, that rabble rousing energy that's like, let's go right now. Um, if for nothing else, then it scares the powers that be so that they compromise with the reformers. Like, you know, mm -hmm. we need, mm -hmm. we need all of it. And, and if we could focus on the butterfly um, and let people, you know, use their intelligence and their energy in the ways that suits them best, you know, I think we're going to get a lot farther. I think that's the scary piece of it. I really appreciate the butterfly metaphor. It's purposeful that it's, were to be seen it were to see it as different quarters and sectioned off right there's a reason we don't have access to that knowledge there's a reason brown mm -hmm. and black bodies are just like lies are put in front of us day after day after day there's the purposeful nature to no we're actually going to show that only the youth will do this part of the butterfly and only the elders will do this part of the butterfly in order to replicate or maintain this um super damaging uh white supremacist when i think about like what is my petty and and where does it come from i think one of the things that i i do to forgive myself is fall into that well it's intentional but when i stop there instead of like well then what's like then do better garcia like <laughs> like why are you annoyed with you know these kids who are blank or these elders who are yelling at you for this and i just it it scares me to think about the level of effort it takes to show the connectedness of those four sections of the butterfly. Mm. I think sometimes I wake up just scared. One of the things I also run into is solidarity around some issues with folks and a lack of solidarity in other issues with the same person. Mm. In the world that you move and in the work that you do, I'm wondering if you've ever encountered that and how you tend to hold that in your head and in your work. And I'll give you uh, one example real quick. Uh, prior to working for the Center for Whole Communities, I spent five years um, in downtown Flint doing work for uh, education around, particularly around folks who are newly diagnosed with HIV. When it comes to 
the LGBTQ plus community, I had much less um, access growing up and was carrying a whole lot of stereotypes, a whole lot of um, ideas that just were outdated and dangerous. Right. And I knew that. And I was clear with my the folks who hired me like, hey, I'm here to learn. And as long as we can be cool with that. Great. So as I learned. Um, as empathy is built, as my ignorance is is examined over and over again, I'm running into brothers all the time, sometimes sisters as well, um, black and brown folks, who we get to talking about justice and we like, yeah, this, that's what's up. Boom, boom, boom. We checking off all the boxes and you could just feel the solidarity building, right? But as soon as the issue comes up around LGBTQ stuff, then all of a sudden, I realized this person and I don't have the same worldview, mm-hmm. right? All of a sudden, you went from being somebody I was really vibing with to somebody I'm starting to feel like I don't like you no more. And that's how my petty can look. Because <laughs> I'm like, yo, I made assumptions that we was all in it together. And now all of a sudden, you like, you know, talking about the gay agenda and shit. Oh wow! Right? Sounded like yep. sounded like mm-hmm. a conspiracy theorist and shit. Like you, Q and I, at this point, and I don't want nothing to do with you. Have you encountered that? And what do you do with that? Because I I struggle with that. <laughs> it's a big well, question. it's interesting. So what it actually reminds me of, right? So so I don't know if you've experienced this, but a lot of the prevailing advice that's given to white folks who uh, fancy themselves as anti-racist is not to ditch their friends and family members who are overtly racist, but instead to remain in relationship and dialogue. Mm-hmm. Like black and brown, as we in black, as black and brown folks tell people do that all the time. Like actually you are the ambassadors. Like you need to be talking to uncle Ray over mm-hmm. time. Right. And you need to hang mm-hmm. in there with him because, because we actually, that, that is what needs to change for us to be safe in this country and so on and so forth. So when you were talking about that, I was, I was, I was with two minds. I was both feeling that empathy of like, Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and for me, it's come, I'm in a Jewish family as well. And so it's come up sometimes with extended family where we're jiving, we're jiving on, on the earth, on even anti-racism, this and that. And then I mentioned Palestine and Oh, okay. <laughs> and then suddenly I don't want to be at the table. Right. But, but what is it um, to stay in relationship mm-hmm. to continue to see a person's full humanity, um, even beyond viewpoint, um, and to really ask ourselves, like, if transformation is not possible here between these people who care about one another and know each other, how can we imagine it's possible mm-hmm. on a societal scale? Like, what are we going to do? Beat, beat it over people's heads until they agree? Like, that's not how how change happens. Change actually happens from a place of of love and empathy and understanding. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, it's one of those stories. So we, we are in a rural area in upstate New York. There are Trump flags flying still and it's over, mm-hmm. right? There's 2024 Trump for president all around my house. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's so many things I can say about that, <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, what I'll say right now, cause of course, you know, the safety plans and this and that other thing, is pretty soon after we moved out here full time, I can't even now remember which hurricane because climate chaos has been that much, but there was a severe hurricane 2012, 2013 that wiped out the only road that goes from this town to anywhere else. So route two and route 22. And when I say wiped out, I mean the a river had basically cut a slice through the road. So there was this like gaping chasm. 
Mm. So elders, you know, can't get to their appointments. Nobody can get groceries. The water, the floods had wiped out uh, topsoil from the farms around. And the liberal urban left talks a lot about mutual aid, this and that other thing as a theory. I will tell you that every single person in this town came out with their tractors, their chainsaws, their shovels, their extra gravel, fill, whatever they had, and put the town back together. Nobody Mm -hmm. got paid. Nobody coordinated anything, right? Mm -hmm. But everybody got fed and everybody got safe. And that was a very important moment for me because I have uh, a lot of judgments and many of them are warranted (laughs) about the politics of my neighbors. But when it came down to it, when it came down to what was actually needed for folks to survive and be humans to each other, people showed up. And I keep trying to see that core in everybody to the extent that I can, right? To try to see that core and build from that core. Um, mm-hmm. that we are people and that, and that I need to hold out hope that, <laughs> that we can be better people. Dive In Justice is a co-production of the Center for Whole Communities and Shoreline Consulting. The Center for Whole Communities exists to build capacity at the individual, organizational, and community level to deepen awareness, embrace differences, and value relationships, thus making change possible. Shoreline Consulting co-constructs solutions and strategies that align with your goals and leverages the voices, perspectives, and wisdom of those who stand to benefit. For more information on the Center for Whole Communities, find us at wholecommunities.org. For more information on Shoreline Consulting, visit us on the web at thinkshorelines.com. Dive in Justice theme song created by Nasir Thomas Jackson. Doug Fahrenstein is our audio engineer. Sarah McCandless is our administrative support. Jennifer Cotting and Soraya Yamada Sapien help us out with marketing and promotional support. Thank you all so much. Without your continued efforts, this show would not be possible.